All right, welcome back. This is the Guidehouse Insights Transportation Podcast for uh, March 23rd, 2022. I'm Sam Abu Al-Samad from Guidehouse Insights, uh, Principal Analyst here on the Transportation Team. And I'm joined today by my colleagues, Ryan Citron, Sajia Benata, Christian Albertson, and Joe Janata. Um, welcome, gentlemen. And uh, let's see, why don't we start off today with Joe? Great. Yeah. So something I've come across over the past couple of weeks is uh, GM's partnership with the California utility Pacific Gas and Electric for a pilot program in vehicle to grid integration. They hope to kick it off in a lab this summer and then roll it out to a handful of homes uh, by the end of this year. California is a natural fit for uh, a vehicle to grid kickoff program because they have the largest adoption of electric vehicles in the U.S. And they also have had a historically unstable grid due to wildfires and wildfire prevention blackouts during summer heat waves uh, due to peak grid uh, demands. So right now, the pilot program aims to allow EV batteries to feed back into homes during these rolling blackouts. And the goal ultimately is to expand that to feed back into the grid rather than just homes. Uh, but that's pretty far off right now is they'll just be testing it in a, the PG&E lab this summer. So they hope to offer EV and homeowners bi-directional chargers integrated with a software that communicates with the grid uh, to alert the system as to when to start feeding back into the home, when that rolling blackout will start. Uh, something I didn't see mentioned in this pilot program uh, which might be a simpler solution or might fit another space entirely, uh, was unidirectional smart charging. I think there's a lot of potential here in California where peak grid demands have been an issue, not just in those uh, summer heat wave months, but uh, year-round. Um, theoretically, it's a simpler process and would offer the EVs the ability to charge EVs charging at home, the ability to communicate with the grid as to when they should have uh, higher electricity flows as to not overload the grid during peak times um, and vice versa. So yeah, I think there's a lot of space here to grow and California is a, a natural jumping off point here. Yeah, there's quite a few automakers that are you know now uh, either building or launching vehicles that su have support for bi-directional charging. Uh, Lucid uh, with the Lucid Air has that built in, uh, and they're launching a, a, a bi-directional wall charger uh, later this year with a built-in transfer switch. Um, Ford on the F one fifty Lightning has that capability, um, and I think what's what's unique about the 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 program with PG&E, the, the Ford system, which they call their intelligent power backup that um, lets you switch over to pulling power from your, your truck battery when uh, a blackout occurs, is it's all handled locally at the, the home. So it detects when power goes out and automatically switches over to drawing power from the, the vehicle. Uh, what PG&E is doing is part of a demand response system where they know when they're, you know, they're, when they're detecting increased loads, they can trigger those generate those uh, inverters to switch over to disconnect the home from the grid and switch over to drawing power from the vehicle, um, so they can manage that and hopefully avoid some of those blackouts. My my question on this would be: 
how many of these vehicles really need to be in place before it's going to affect the brownouts and blackouts that you're going to get in California? They haven't really said, I don't think, uh, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, on the order of uh, certainly, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of vehicles that have this capability. Um, so, you know, before it, before it, I think before it has any kind of real impact, it's probably going to be, you know, at least a few more years, you know, to get that number of vehicles that are capable. Um, but, you know, once that happens, you know, it, it will, uh, you know, it, it should have a significant impact on avoiding some of these rolling blackouts that um, PG&E customers in California have been dealing with for a number of years now. Yeah, and I think with the initial pilot programs, they're hoping to roll them out in the areas most affected. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to fully judge where those might be in the future. So I, that's st- it's still uh, in the works there. Yeah, P- PG&E mostly serves uh, Northern California, mm-hmm. um, and so you know it's it's a fairly large area service area that they have. Um, and you know, if they anything that they can do to make the grid more reliable in that area, I think people will appreciate. Um, and, and it's important to keep in mind that this doesn't include for now, at least doesn't include feeding power from the vehicles back into the grid. Um, you know, so when, when the switch is over, you've got a transfer switch at the home that essentially disconnects the home from the grid. Um, and you know, part of the reason for that, you know, is managing, you know, these disparate sources of, of power coming into the grid, um, that, that can be challenging. And also for safety of line workers that are, you know, in the event that they, you know, have a, a, a an outage due to a, a power line down or something like that, you know, you don't want power flowing through there back from people's batteries um, that could electrocute line workers. Mm-hmm. I, I think down the line, though, they are hoping to have that uh, vehicles feed back into the grid entirely, though. But that's that's pretty yeah, that's right that's a more long term thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, a couple of days after the uh, the announcement with GM and PG and E, PG and E also announced that Ford would also be participating in this with uh, with the F one fifty. And I expect that they'll pull other automakers in as well. Joe, do you do you know? Um if the customers who sign up to this to this program do they need to pay for the for the uh, bi-directional charges or is PG&E providing them for free um it sounds like they come it uh, PG&E will be providing them but th- that's pretty far off as they're just testing it in the lab this summer to see how it'll actually be executed um but that i i would assume that PG&E would be providing that bi-directional charger as it's still the pilot program yeah and is, is an indication like how many customers will be in, in this? Um, I didn't find an exact number, but I would assume it's relatively small due to the nature, the complex nature of it, and uh, the fact that they're just testing in the lab this summer and then scaling it out. So I would assume that scale out would be uh, relatively small and slow. Uh, I think that they're targeting a few hundred customers by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's still substantial for, for a pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they incentivize the customers to um, to feed back into the grid. Yeah, I think the incentive would be uh, right for the feeding back into the home would be um, that you obviously don't have the bad the the effects of the blackout um, hit you. But to the next step, where you want them to feed back into the grid, it's hard to 
fully understand that incentive. Yeah, when uh, when the light when the F one fifty Lightning goes on sale, um, Ford just announced the pricing for their um, their bi directional charger for that, which I think is going to be about eighteen hundred dollars for for that unit. Yeah, it's quite substantial the cost of uh, VTG chargers. Yeah. All right. Anything else, Joe? I uh, know that's it. All right. Let's move on to Ryan then. Sounds good. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so this week, I'm going to talk about how rising gas prices are leading to increased uh, EV sales, particularly looking at uh, e-bikes. There's been a number of stories going on lately, and uh, recently interviewed for Automotive News on this as well. Uh, these high gas prices are really giving e-bikes a, a second wind. So first wind was from the pandemic, and now second wind from, from high gas prices. Uh, a lot of stories going on in the news about this. I've talked to several e-bike retailers and, and distributors as well, and pretty much everyone's noting a, a really big spike uh, in e-bike interest and, and sales with, with rising gas prices. Uh, one example is from e-bike maker Van Moof, who's had sales over the past two weeks have been twice as high as their projections. Um, and many companies are kind of having stats like that come out over the last probably two to four weeks. Uh and when you look at the, the cost, you know, it, it does start to make a lot of sense. Uh, a common e-bike battery of 52 volts, 17.5 amps, costs somewhere between 15 and 25 cents to, to fully recharge it uh, compared to, you know, depending on the, the size of your, your tank could be, you know, $70, $80 plus to, to fill a tank of gas. So these high gas prices have really pushed some consumers who were, you know, maybe on the fence uh, to, to pull the trigger and just get an e-bike. Uh, if they were wavering before, uh, some of the style e-bikes that are seeing the biggest increases are commuter e-bikes as well as cargo bikes. Uh, since you can haul groceries and, and other things like that on cargo bikes, if people have commutes kind of less than 10 or 15 kilometers or you know, 5, 10 miles, it's all, all pretty easy uh, by e-bike, more flexible uh, than cars in terms of parking and, and can also even be faster sometimes if, if bike lanes are wide open compared to uh highly congested streets. Uh, also seeing on the shared side, a similar uh, micro-mobility sharing side, a, a similar increase in interest. Bird has kind of come out and then noted how the high gas prices are increasing a lot of interest and, and usage in their electric options, uh, being both e-bikes and uh, shared e-scooters. Um, and there's some more data coming out about how e-bikes can replace car trips, uh, according to a new study from Zurich uh, in Switzerland. Uh, car owners who also own an e-bike use their e-bike to replace about half the miles they usually traveled by car. So it is um, replacing a lot of these car miles. And uh, we expect e-bike sales in North America to hit kind of at least at 1.3 million mark this year uh, compared to just over a million in 2021. So pretty strong increases year over year. And then really the main questions is, is can the supply chain keep up with demand and uh, how will bicycle infrastructure uh, kind of improve to, to keep people comfortable and safe while biking. But uh, yeah, curious from others if, if they've been, if they have A, any questions or, or thoughts on, on gas prices and e-bikes, and then B, if they've been seeing in other electric vehicle markets, uh, these this huge spike in gas prices kind of increasing sales. Um, hey, Ryan. Um, yeah. I know one of the issues over the last couple of years with the growth in e-bikes has been availability, you know, just trying to yeah. find one. Has yeah. has that 
you know, has there, has there been any progress on that front in making them more available or is the global supply chain problem still affecting that? Yeah, it's still definitely affecting it. Uh, I don't think it's as bad as it was uh, about a year ago um, where you're on like a six to eight month wait list to get an e-bike, but uh, it may depend on specific companies. That's something that I'm looking to dive into a bit deeper. Um, it's something that the article I interviewed for is going to look at as well. Uh, but it's a great point because really the only thing I'm seeing really keeping the e-bike market down is the supply chain issues. The demand is pretty out of control at this point. And, and my understanding is that people are still having to wait months to, to get a lot of e-bike models and they're not able to just walk into a store and grab it right away. So depending on your location and the brand and stuff like that, obviously, but uh, still continuing to, to be a challenge and, and hopefully will uh, be kind of reduced further uh, later this year. Right. You've seen similar things on the EV side, Sam. Um, kind of, I know Tesla's, I think, had a pretty big spike in sales. And other automakers, are you hearing anything around this? Yeah, there, there's absolutely um, significant growth in demand for EVs. And as with all other vehicle types, consumers are having a hard time finding them in stock. Um, you know, and in most cases, you know, a lot of the the EVs from uh, traditional brands uh, are still in relatively short supply. You know, they're, <clears throat> they're having challenges ramping up production um, because they can't get enough batteries yet. Um, and that's something I'll, I'll be talking a little bit more about in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, there's still definitely shortages of, of EVs of all types. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Saji then. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so I, I thought I'd talk about um, um, NVIDIA's recent um, announcements of their new um, HD mapping platform. Um, so they, they've, they've called it um, DeepMap. Um, so it's obviously the intention of, of HD mapping is to, uh, to support autonomous vehicles, um, providing additional information um, that to, to the vehicles or to the AI that's controlling these vehicles um, to, I guess, provide more data, uh, redundant data, um, and more accurate information to, to improve decision-making. Um, so NVIDIA have, have, have just announced that um, they've, they've got a fleet of vehicles who will be uh, surveying roads uh, worldwide, um, predominantly North America, Europe, um, and Asia, um, covering over half a million miles um, by uh, 2024. Um, so um, some of the, you know, some of the, the benefits of um, HD mapping um, for, for, for the vehicles is that highly contextual information, for example, on, on specific lane divisions or, or lane markings or road markings, um, location of, of uh, street furniture, whether that be uh, street, street uh, lampposts, um, uh, sign, signs and so on, um, and providing this information at very high resolution. So within five centimeters uh, of accuracy. Um, this platform combines the, um, the survey, which is being conducted by their own fleet, um, with also um, gathering information from crowdsourced data um, from other vehicles which have um, um, NVIDIA's um, Hyperion um, sensing platform uh, installed in the vehicles. So to date, that, that does cover you know, several thousand or millions of, of, of vehicles in the road. So the roads uh, information will be kept um, up to date and, and, and fresh from that. Um, 
the dry map itself, I think it was it's probably like a result of an, a recent acquisition by NVIDIA um, um, last year. Um, but they acquired a startup called DriveMap, who, who developed this this platform and and the, um, the technology for conducting the surveys. Um, and the, the the center suite on the survey vehicles include uh, 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 vision cameras, uh, lidar, and radar um, to to get a, a highly detailed and, and accurate uh, representation of the roads. Um, and um, in combination with this, as I mentioned, is um, the data which is gathered by the um, drivers of the um, Hyperion-based uh, vehicles which, which are on the road. So that includes several uh, OEMs from, uh, I think, um, Volvo is an example, um, Daimler, um, but also those developing um, autonomous vehicles such as Zooks and Cruise um, are, are also uh, on Hyperion. So um, another benefit of this data is um, NVIDIA have their own um, uh, driving simulation platform, um, which they call Omniverse. So this data could be used to create almost like a digital twin of the world's roads to try and simulate um, uh, autonomous vehicle interactions. Um, um, but also it can, it can look to benefit um, um, uh, scenarios where tele-operation uh, is required. Um, and also for fleet uh, fleet management uh, simulations. So, um, so so yeah, I think it's a big step forward um, for for HD mapping and for Nvidia. Um, and um, yeah, we we look forward to seeing the updates on on their on their surveys. Yeah, DeepMap uh, is an interesting company that they acquired last year uh, to do this, and that that's going to be critical to really scaling up these maps is crowdsourcing. Um, you know, putting out your own fleet of vehicles to, you know, to collect that data, you know, the, uh, NVIDIA during their um, uh, keynote at GTC yesterday uh, talked about, um, you know, collecting half, like you said, half a million miles of highways uh, by 2024, which is, you know, that's, that's a start, but it, you know, it's not that much. And it's, it's costly if you've got to send out your own fleet to do that data collection, um, and what DeepMap is doing is similar to what Mobileye does with their road experience management. Um, what um, Carmera, another company that, that was acquired by Toyota last year, or at least by Toyota's uh, Woven Planet unit, they're doing is which is collecting the data from vehicle sensors, customer vehicles. Um, and Mobileye has been doing this for several years now. They've got several million vehicles on the road with the IQ4 uh, SOCs in there that are. They in 2021 alone, they harvested about four billion kilometers of roads in Europe, uh, and they've got several billion more in the U.S. and and in, in various parts of Asia as well. So they're um, they've got a, a big head start, but that's going to be critical to not only building those maps but keeping them fresh and up to date. Yeah, yeah, and it would be interesting to see whether. Um you know, with all of the crowdsourced data that will be, be flooding in, whether there's still a need to, to also periodically send out their, their own dedicated fleet to, um, to, you know, to capture major changes to, to, to road, either the rules or, um, you know, the, the, the layout. I suspect over the long term, uh, they'll probably shift away from that, especially <clears throat> as you start to get more highly automated ve consumer vehicles. You get um, more of them with... Uh, with additional sensors, not just cameras. Uh, the DeepMap and Carmera and Mobileye systems are all based on just collecting camera data, 
But um, once you've got vehicles that have things like imaging radar and LIDAR on there, you can also collect some of that data um, and start to build those richer maps uh, that are going to be essential for um, enabling uh, automated driving. All right. Uh, Christian, what's going on in the aviation space? Well, I, got, I have uh, two stories today, one aviation, one more on the fun side of electric vehicles. Um, we'll start with the aviation side. So um, came out on the 22nd, so um, yesterday, I guess, that a one of the big guys, Textron, who owns Cessna, Beechcraft, Bell Aviation, is purchasing Pipistrelle. Now, Pipistrelle is the small um, European aircraft uh, manufacturer that to date has the current only uh, fully certified or EASA certified electric vehicle. And these, these electric aircraft are being flown around the world, pure electric. They're great little aircraft for training. People love them as, as, as um, just little transports to, to go out and fly around in great little aircraft. Well, Textron purchasing them really changes what uh, what this small company is going to be able to do. So in, what's going to happen with these is uh, Pipistrelle is going to become part of Textron E-Aviation. And they're going to focus um, out of Wichita, Kansas, which is where the Cessna factories are, um, are, major, are mostly located, and basically be able to... Um, allow Pipistrelle to, to have the resources of the large Textron company behind them. So they'll be able to, to develop more technologies. They'll be able to get to market faster, market easier. They'll be able to get through regulations a little bit better because they'll be built here in the United States using that same technology that they've been using in, uh, in Europe. So what's, what's really neat about this is this is the first merger and acquisition type thing that I was, I was talking about in my paper about electric aircraft that might change the forecast is now we have one of the big players has purchased some, uh, one of the small players who is uh, in the market and proven in the market. So now hopefully we can start to increase the production of these small electric aircraft. Um, it's really exciting to see because Pipistrelle is just an amazing little aircraft and, and, um, I haven't flown in one myself, but the people who have flown in these little electric aircraft absolutely love them. Um, so it's going to be going to be really interesting to see if uh, or how much of this technology is brought into the Cessna field and the Cessna 172, which uh, and, and that line of aircraft, which is one of the most popular aircraft out there. Pipistrelle has only delivered 2,500 aircraft total since they, they um, were founded in 1989. So going from 2,500 total to being part of a company that's done thousands and probably close to 100,000 of these small aircraft, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the, uh, the Cessna brand of aircraft. Hey, Christian, quick question. Yeah. Um, so has the, sorry, what was the name of the company that acquired Pipistrelle? Textron. Textron. 
have, you know, sometimes when companies acquire others, they just kind of want a piece of that business and let them continue operating kind of on their own and don't change a lot. Have they indicated that they want to scale up this business using their own resources? Is that yes. What, what they're going to do is, is what they're saying is they're going to, Pipistrelle is going to become a major part of their e-aviation brand. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, it's, uh, they already have Textron e-aviation but it's the Pipistrelle and their technology is going to be brought in and be a big part of that. And that, right. that brand is out of Wichita, um, Kansas. Uh, the, you mentioned that Pipistrelle is the only one that's got an EASA certified electric aircraft. Um, is there anything in particular uh, about what Pipistrelle has developed that will be beneficial to the other other parts of Textron. Like, do, do they have any unique technology? Um, it's just they're they were the first basically to get it out there with, um, uh, you know, the, the plane, the charger, uh, everything that they have is small enough. It doesn't give you a four hour flight. It gives you, I, I believe, it's an uh, hour to an hour and a half flight time on their aircraft. So they have they have very good little aircraft. They're not really a, um, I mean, the innovation is there with them, you know, getting it out there and getting them delivered and everything. I mean, first for that, but it's not like it's it's not obtainable by anybody else. They have it there, but what's done is now that they have that, they can bring that into the Cessna side of it, which those are the type of aircraft that Pepistrom builds is the small Cessna type aircraft. Um, so that technology should marry very well with the Cessna brand, as well as if they keep the Pipistrelle brand itself, now that they're going to they're gonna have better production facilities and, and better, you know, uh, better ways to get these, air, these smaller aircraft to market. Because a lot of times you talk about Pipistrelle to um, somebody in the aviation industry and they've, oh, I've heard about them, but they're, you know, they're small. And they, they really kind of brush them off. But it's a really, really good quality aircraft from everything I've seen about it. So it's not really the major innovation or anything that's that's new. It's just they were the first and they got it certified and they, they've got it flying and, and sold and delivered. So I think is, that's why. Is it certified for North America as well or yes. just in Europe? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, there's a uh, matter of fact, there's a couple people uh, – uh, inside Guidehouse that have one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, I mean, they're they're neat little aircraft. They are, and they're, you know, it's it's a plug-in pure electric aircraft. It's really neat. Cool. All right. And then um, I had a fun one that I saw an article the other day that I was I was just absolutely happy about. Um, how many of you have heard of Big Daddy Don Garlitz? I have. I knew you would. <laughs> The other guys are going, who? Um, okay, so Big Daddy Don Garlitz is a drag racer and has been racing since 60s, I Early believe. 60s? Yeah, because yeah. he's he's 90 or 92 right now. He's he, older guy. He just, The name of his car and his first car was called the Swamp Rat, and that was his front-engine dragster. And, and, and every time he builds a new Swamp Rat, he just calls it Swamp Rat 2, Swamp Rat 3. Well, they just rolled out a little bit earlier this year, Swamp Rat 38, and it is a pure electric dragster. Um, 
him and one other guy, I can't remember the other guy's name, uh, were racing to reach 200 miles an hour in a pure electric dragster. And they've done it. So now these guys are, are going, okay, what's next? Let's go for 225. Let's go for 250. So um, it is a really interesting looking dragster, uh, a little bit different. It's the, the long uh, top fuel type dragster, but it's pure electric. And But Swamp Rat 38 is out there and they are going to be touring with Swamp Rat 38 plus the other guy's electric uh, dragster just so they can go out and, and do these exhibition races around the country. And, and prove that you can, you know, do 200 miles an hour in a quarter mile with an electric car. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Garlitz uh, did a lot of innovations over the years in drag racing. Uh, he, <clears throat> he was the first to build uh, a rear-engine uh, top-fuel dragster after he uh, almost got killed when the, uh, his front-engine dragster blew up in front of him. And uh, turn around and built a rear engine one. And he's done a lot of interesting things over the years. I'll be curious to see how they progress with this electric one. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting. I've, I've just looked at some pictures of, of the, uh, the dragster and I'm, I'm impressed uh, that this guy has reached 90 years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, um, he's, he's amazing. I've been, I was watching him when I was a kid, you know, and it's just, it's fun to watch. And I always love the Swamp Rat. We've actually, uh, down in Florida, they have the um, the Swamp Rat Museum, where they have a bunch of the older Swamp Rat cars, plus a few other dragsters out there. And just a really neat place. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool that he's 90 years old and still doing that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, if I'm around at, at 90, uh, I'll still have that kind of energy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, speaking of energy, um, you know, electric vehicles require some sort of energy storage system, just as gasoline vehicles do. They have a have a gas tank, um, and EVs use batteries. And uh, um, if, if we're going to get to a point where we go all electric at some point in the future, um, we're going to need a lot more capacity for building batteries than we have today. And we've over the last year and a half, we've seen a whole bunch of announcements from numerous automakers that are, have started investing directly in battery production, uh, including Volkswagen, General Motors, Ford, Volvo, and, and, and several others. Um, among those is Stellantis, the company formed last year out of the merger of PSA and Fiat Chrysler. And uh, they already um, have, uh, Stellantis already has two joint venture battery plants under construction in Europe uh, through a joint venture with Total, uh, one in Germany, one in France, and plans for a third one there. And last year they announced their intention to build at least two battery plants in North America. Uh, to reach their goal of getting to 50% uh, EV sales by the end of this decade. Um, today, they made the official announcement of the first of those, uh, in fact, just uh, less than an hour before we um, started recording today. Um, and uh, the first of those is a, a joint venture with LG, um, similar to what uh, GM is doing with LG for their Ultium Cells business unit. Um they're investing about $5 billion Canadian, roughly uh, $4 billion U.S. dollars in uh, a battery plant near Windsor, Ontario, which is just across the river from uh, Detroit. Um, 
Stellantis already has a major assembly plant in Windsor where they build the, um, they have built minivans since the 1980s, uh, currently builds the uh, Chrysler Pacifica minivans uh, with the plug-in hybrid version of which uses an LG battery. Uh, and it's expected that that plant is going to be converted over to EV production uh, in the next couple of years uh, as, the, as they shift production from the current generation of Pacifica to whatever follows on, which may well be the... Um, production version of the, the Chrysler Airflow that they showed at CES this year, uh, one of their first EVs. Um, so the that plant will be, uh, like most of the other battery plants, one, one of the, the strategies that we're seeing across the industry is that automakers are investing in battery production and locating the, the cell production facilities uh, geographic in geographic proximity to where their um, their vehicle assembly plants are, uh, because batteries remain very large and heavy, and, and in some cases dif- uh, dangerous to transport, and so they want to keep that supply chain um, down to a minimum as far as as distances go. Um, currently, most of the batteries used in, in EVs produced in North America, uh, aside from Tesla, um, are sourced from um, Korea or China. Um, or in some cases, even Europe. Uh, and as the, the volume of EV production goes up over the, the coming years, they're going to need a lot more battery production. So they're, they're locating those here uh, in North America. Um, GM's first three battery plants with LG are in Ohio, Tennessee, and here in Michigan. Uh, Ford's building plants with SK in Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, Nissan already has a plant in Tennessee, which is supplied by AESC, the company that they sold off to Envision, a Chinese company, a few a couple of years ago. Um, Tesla, of course, uh, is building cells in uh, in Nevada with Panasonic, uh, but they plan to add another facility in Texas, and they're also bringing in um, lithium iron phosphate cells for the Model Three from China, uh, supplied by CATL. Um, so this will be the first large-scale automotive uh, battery plant uh, in Canada uh, when it opens up. Construction is planned to start a little later this year uh, with production uh, operational by the first quarter of 2024. Um, and <clears throat> this is, if you know, the, the cells themselves are only one piece of the, the battery supply chain. Um, we also need to um, get all the, the key raw materials that go in there. And so we're seeing a number of investments from manufacturers into raw material production uh, in North America, localizing that as well, getting, getting as, you know, trying to shorten the supply lines. Um, currently, most of the lithium, uh, nickel, um, manganese, cobalt um, that's used in batteries is sourced from places like South America, Australia, Africa for cobalt. Um, sent to China for processing into the, the cathode materials and then shipped off to wherever it's being used. Um, obviously, that negate if you're shipping those materials halfway around the world a couple of times, that negates a lot of the, uh, the CO2 benefits of using an electric vehicle. So they, they want to localize that production as well and also to help minimize the potential for disruptions like we've seen over the last year, whether it's from 
environmental impacts, um, uh, pandemics, or geopolitical situations. So uh, we've seen uh, GM recently announce um, a deal with Posco Chemical. They they had original, initially announced a couple of months ago that they were going to work with Posco, which is a Korean company, to um, to do cathode material production uh, in North America. And they announced uh, that uh, that plant is going to be going in uh, in Quebec. Uh, so that's another another win for Canada on, uh, there. And they'll be supplying cathode materials to the various Altium cells plants uh, in North America. Uh, and then just this week, um, Graphics Group um, is the company that uh, does work with graphi- graphite, uh, announced that they're building a graphite processing plant in Warren, Michigan. Um, and uh, <clears throat> they haven't said who they're going to be supplying from there, uh, but that that plant will have the capacity to supply multiple battery plants. Uh, and graphite is used extensively in the uh, anode materials in battery cells. So um, seeing growth across the entire supply chain for batteries uh in North America, getting that getting that whole supply chain localized as much as possible. So, Sam, do you see EVs kind of helping with having more local manufacturing? It kind of sounds like it's advantageous to have batteries closer to home due to the shipping challenges with their weight and uh, safety issues and things like that. I mean, we've seen a lot of car plants move to Mexico and, and to other places. Um, so do you see EVs as having kind of a particular advantage around more local production? And then I guess that would be the first question. The second question would be, so how do you see overall the size and scale uh, of auto manufacturing changing with, with uh, the shift to EVs? Yeah, so um, localization, you know, there's a number of factors driving localization. Obviously, the environmental impact and the, the logistics cost of moving batteries and battery materials around is a major factor. Um, and that's, that's driving a lot of this. Uh, the other piece of this, of course, you know, over the last two years, we've seen how brittle global supply chains have become because we've, uh, the, over the process of globalization over the last couple of decades, a lot of manufacturing has been concentrated, uh, in relatively few places, particularly in Asia, a lot, especially for electronics, a lot of it in China, uh, but also other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, any sort of disruption, you know, if you're producing almost all of any kind of pro- given product in one place, um, you know, any sort of disruption, whether it's due to, you know, a health emergency, um, a you know, weather emergency, earthquakes, fires, uh, or geopolitical trade issues, um, you know, can easily disrupt cause large economic disruptions around the world. There's a lot of cascading effects. And I think the, the industry as a whole has seen the, the dangers of that and, you know, that that can be very costly and, and very disruptive to production and, and jobs everywhere. Uh, so I think they, they want to move back towards a more diversified supply base um, with, you know, perhaps in some cases, multiple suppliers. Uh, or at least flexibility to move between suppliers, and and to have have that supply base be located in more locations around the world, so that you you have those shorter runs between where the components or the materials are being sourced from uh, and uh, the end product. Um, and then what I forget what was the second 
part you asked? Uh, just kind of how EVs in general might change the oh. landscape for manufacturing and how many jobs would be reduced or percentage of jobs lost due to that shift and fewer parts needed and, and workers needed, things like that. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely um, triggering changes in the uh, automotive manufacturing landscape. Uh, clearly, as we move towards EVs, um, there's a lot less demand for um, internal combustion components, engines and transmissions, for example. Um, and we're going to see a lot of those factories um, be either closed or reconfigured to, um, to producing other components. Uh, for example, uh, Ford has a transmission plant north of Detroit here, their Van Dyke transmission plant, uh, that uh, you know, it's been operating for decades, uh, building transmissions for a wide variety of Ford vehicles. And um, last year, late last year, they launched production there of electric motors. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, they're they're trying to reuse facilities they have and employ the you know keep the people they have employed. So they're putting electric motor production in there. Uh, we're going to see similar things, you know, going on at other factories as well. Um, you know, there's going to be a shift in the kinds of jobs uh, that are that are required. Um, you know, even at the assembly level, you know, a lot of what it takes to assemble an electric vehicle is basically the same process as what it takes to assemble an internal combustion vehicle. Um, there are fewer components, somewhat fewer components to put together. Um, you know, because you don't have fuel systems, and you know, the, the parts that are coming into the assembly line are um, more consolidated, for example, you know, a battery pack, you know, taking the place of a fuel tank and fuel lines and a bunch of other components, you know, and then the electric motors are smaller, easier to install. Um, so it's, it's from the conversations I've had, it's estimated that it'll take about 20 to 30% fewer people to assemble an EV than it does to assemble a traditional vehicle. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're seeing new jobs being created, uh, you know, in battery manufacturing um, and in the uh, material processing, um, also in the, on the recycling side. You know, uh, with, with all these batteries, you know, I, est- I estimate that if we were to switch to 100% EV production in North America, you know, uh, assuming continue to produce about 11 million vehicles a year in North America, that would require about a terawatt hour of batteries every year. Um, as a point of reference, beginning of 2020 or end of 2020, we had about 40 gigawatt hours of production. So that's, that's about a, a 20x increase in battery production capacity that's required. So, you know, some of those jobs that previously have been maybe assembling engines are going to be shifting to assembling electric motors. Some of them are going to go to assembling, uh, to building batteries, assembling battery packs. Um, so there's going to be a change in jobs, but then also recycling of batteries as, as those batteries reach end of life. Um, you know, the raw materials to make a, a terawatt hour of batteries every year requires a lot of raw materials. Um, a lot of nickel and copper and aluminum and manganese and, and maybe cobalt and or iron and phosphorus. Um, and mining all of that, you know, is not, not necessarily viable to, to use virgin materials for all of that. So um, re- a lot of recycled materials are going to be a key part of this 
And there's, um, you know, uh, one of the, one of the nice things about batteries is, you know, the recycling processes they've developed, they can recover about 95 to 98% of the key materials from end of life batteries and also from the scrap that comes from battery production. Um, and then feed that right, reprocess that and feed it right back into the production cycle. So you can greatly reduce the amount of virgin material that you need to mine for those, for all those batteries. But, and that's, that's new jobs there in that re, in collection of the batteries and then reprocessing. Right. No, that's a good point. I mean, often it's talked about that EV production will reduce jobs because it requires less people and less parts, but uh, it's not talked about enough. Kind of the you know, transition jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And then new jobs, like you said, in battery recycling and mm-hmm. battery manufacturing that didn't exist Somewhere before, I think the the Windsor plant is twenty five hundred or three thousand new jobs uh, for the yep. city, something like that. So it's pretty significant influx, especially for for a town like Windsor, is pretty small city. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities to uh, add new and different types of jobs coming out of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening again, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Cool. Thanks all. See you.